You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. U.S. intelligence services SIFT captured ISIS files for insight into the terrorist group's information operations. Hacktivists argue over the ethics of doxing. The contending moralists are Edward Snowden and Julian Assange. Investigation into the DNC hack continues, and a fresh investigation opens into the possible compromise of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. North Korea seems to be after online shopping credentials, a lot of them, in South Korea. State-sponsored hacking is seen as driving the security market. And if you're looking for a Pokemon to train, here's some news you can use. In the course of your search, don't climb the fence at Fort Meade. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire summary for Friday, July 29, 2016. The U.S. is sifting through a considerable volume of material on ISIS online activities. The caliphate's information operations have been largely devoted to inspiration and recruiting, particularly the exploitation of recorded murder as propaganda of the deed. What can be learned from ISIS's captured records will become clearer over coming weeks. In other respects, this has been a week of doxing, dominated, of course, by the release of material obtained from the U.S. Democratic National Committee. The leaks brought down DNC Chair Debbie Wasserman Schultz and prompted Republican nominee Donald Trump to suggest the Russians, presumably the people behind the hack, might release the emails Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton deleted from her private server after her tenure as Secretary of State ended. So, all of this has prompted some soul-searching in the hacktivist community. The Internet Archive, with some hacktivist concurrence, took down files posted with a view to exposing alleged repression in Turkey, but it's difficult to contain such information once it's out. The files, inducing some retrospective hacktivist regrets, included a great deal of personal information about ordinary Turkish citizens. Kind of everything went wrong, one of the hacktivists involved told Motherboard. The email's WikiLeaks dumped from the Democratic National Committee also contained personal information, mostly about donors to the party. WikiLeaks regrets nothing, but some people nominally aligned with them do. Edward Snowden, for one, while approving of WikiLeaks' devotion to openness and transparency, thinks they shouldn't be so resistant to, quote, even modest curation, end quote. WikiLeaks tweeted back, quote, opportunism won't earn you a pardon from Clinton and curation is not censorship of ruling party cash flows, end quote, and included, with some appearance of snark, a link to the Wikipedia article on digital curation, which defines it as selection, preservation, maintenance, collection, and archiving of digital assets. We note, by the way, that Mr. Snowden is currently living in Russia. Reaction to this intramural hacktivist dispute has been mixed, some lining up with Snowden, others with WikiLeaks. Sympathy for the WikiLeaks position seems prompted mostly by the news that the FBI has opened another investigation, this into the hacking of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. WikiLeaks sympathizers see criticism of the group as objectively aligned with opponents of transparency. 
The FBI is said to have warned the Clinton campaign of a possible compromise back in March, at about the same time the DNC realized someone was in its servers. Experts continue to point out that people should draw the lesson that encryption is worth the trouble. Did we mention that Edward Snowden is currently resident in Russia? This leads naturally to the question of who's behind the WikiLeaks documents, and most observers led by security companies CrowdStrike and FireEye have concluded that Russian intelligence services, the FSB, also known as Cozy Bear, and the GRU, aka Fancy Bear, were responsible for the long-running compromise of DNC networks. They then would have been the ones providing the documents to WikiLeaks. This consensus, however, is not without its dissenters. Thai Global's Jeffrey Carr, for one, points out the circumstantial quality of the evidence on display. Forensic evidence is usually circumstantial, however much of it may accumulate. Guccifer 2.0's claims to be both responsible for the hacking and no kind of Russian at all, for example, were undermined in part by tags found in the leaked document's metadata, including the name in Cyrillic, Felix Edmundich, the first name and patronymic of Felix Edmundovich Zerzinski, founder of the Soviet security services under Lenin. Why, skeptics ask, would a spy tag files like that? This would be like the FBI tagging files used in a honeypot, J. Edgar. Not impossible, but questionable tradecraft. Assuming that this persuasive but still partially unsettled attribution is correct, what could the motive have been? FireEye finds it interesting that a government is willing to make routine use of criminal channels and techniques. They also think it likely that Russia's government wanted to be caught. They wanted to show that they could hack U.S. targets with impunity. CrowdStrike isn't buying this. What intelligence service, they ask in effect, wants to see an operation blown? And they think the Russians, the GRU in particular, got caught because they were clumsy. Other states seem unashamed to engage in cybercrime. North Korea, for example, is back in the news as South Korean investigators report that the DPRK has stolen some 10 million online shopping credentials. There's much discussion of a need for cooperation in cybersecurity by government, universities, and industry. We spoke with Daniel Ennis, former NTOC director at NSA and currently executive director of the University of Maryland Global Initiative on Cyber. He joined us in our studio in Baltimore, and I started our conversation by asking him about his experience at NSA. So take us through the, the Threat Operations Center. What is the mission of the center? What, what are they there to do? Well, the primary mission is to understand what is in the foreign intelligence space relative to cyber and actually help the protection of U.S. national security systems uh, by translating that and working with elements across the NSA and across the U.S. government uh, in providing information assurance and defensive uh, uh, insights that might help protect those systems. And who who are you partnering partnering with? What are your relationships it's with the, industry? Well, there's that's the that's the cyberspace that we all live in, the cyber context that we all live in. Principally, working with the FBI and DHS because they have authorities to to uh, to help in in the United States uh, context, but. Uh, more importantly, uh, across a broader spectrum than that, working with the private sector, uh, working with industry groups, ultimately um, working with ent ent entities that uh, uh, have been penetrated and for whatever reason the U.S. government believes that we ought to help them. Um, I mean, at the, at the end of the day, when you start talking about cyber, um, well, I, my principal role was to, or our principal role was to help protect 
national security systems. Ultimately, when you have threats against the financial sector or other sectors, um, and, and NSA has relevance in that space, it's, it's incumbent upon us to figure out how to help. When, when you look at the, the various threats that affect both the United States and on a global level, where, in, your, in your opinion, where does cyber rank? Where, where does it fit in? Uh, well, so, I mean, first of all, you have to look at the context that we're in the United States or the world, right? We live on a digital platform. I mean, and the, the commerce and everything we do in the United States is on the Internet. Um, we as a nation are one of the most vulnerable uh, to cyber attacks, to cyber intrusions, because we are so tied to the Internet. I think that uh, if I had to just sort of uh, create a construct, I mean, certainly counterterrorism and, and issues associated with terrorism take top priority because the concern about physical uh, threats to, to U.S. persons and our allies. Um, certainly counterproliferation, given the, the, you know, how problems in that space could create uh, issues that we all um, would would want to avoid, um, but I would put it right up there because of the cyber the cyber piece. I would put it right up there in parallel with those mission sets because we are so vulnerable as a country, and it is such a part of our future. When you looked at our capabilities as a nation uh, in terms of defending ourselves, in terms of, of um, you know being able to handle these cyber threats, what what were some of the areas where you thought? This is an area where we've got it under control versus this is an area that that, uh, you know, might keep me up at night. Well, I mean, again, everything's relative. So I thought we had relative strength in the space of as at NSA and its primary role of of protecting U.S. Department of Defense systems and ultimately um, uh, uh, helping others uh, in protection of the national security systems. That said, um, given the the wide open nature of the Internet and given the essentially how um, both the uh, nation states and, and criminal elements have proffered and prospered in this space, I think we're massively vulnerable across all the spectrum. And so I think that we have strength in our knowledge. We have strength in our capability. Um, we even have strength in, in, in our knowledge as how we apply defensive measures to protect systems. But there's such a huge vulnerability and such huge gaps, and we talk about you know, new zero days being created every day that are that make whatever element that you might refer to vulnerable. I think that in that space, you know, we just have a huge way ahead, a, a huge mountain to climb if we're going to actually secure systems. I mean, I, it, it's, it doesn't go unnoticed that our information assurance organization at NSA had come out with, in many instances, you know, hey, these are the top 10 things you should do to protect yourself. But even in that space, most entities aren't even taking the most basic steps to do that. So it's not just that the, the vulnerability is there. It's that even when you represent that you understand how you could make yourself less, less vulnerable, how you can close off uh, the, uh, you know, uh, the possible vectors of attack that, that you might face, most people aren't doing it. So when people think of the NSA, I think there's this this popular, almost sort of Hollywood version of what the NSA is and what the NSA does. How, how do you think the public's perception of the NSA aligns with the reality of what the NSA actually does on a day-by-day basis? Well, I think you hit it. Um, there's a probably a Hollywood version. Um, you know, if I go to see a James Bond movie, I want to see bells and whistles, right? Um, and I think that in some instances, people kind of want to see that. Um, but obviously the reality is much different. I think there's also a part of this context is some of the Snowden 
uh, insights that were provided, uh, which, by the way, clearly I think he, he got a lot, that a lot wrong. Um, NSA is an incredibly technically proficient agency, um, and I think what we would want them to know, and I'm retired, but I still love the place, what I would want the people to know is that they actually follow the rule of law, uh, that in fact they at great pains strive to follow the rule of law. Um, they, we have incredibly robust process, incredibly uh, 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 robust leadership, whose job it is every day is to make sure that we are following that rule of law. I think if you checked with some of the civil libertarians that were a part of the process, the review process after some of the Snowden information came out, they will tell you that you know if they had a surprise, it was just how much uh, emphasis and how much uh, just true, pure process that NSA places on ensuring that they follow that, uh, that rule of law. And I think that people would be surprised how much time and how much emphasis is actually spent on making sure that they get that right. Do you actually have a, a big you know, dimly lit room that looks like NASA, NASA mission control with lots of big yeah. screens? And <laughs> yeah, there actually is. There is an ops floor. Um, there's a couple of them. Um, yes, you do have those places, and you do have – because there is a 24-7 mission. Sure. So anytime you have a 24-7 mission, you're going to have a room that actually um, is geared to that. And so people turn the lights down because it, it actually is a better working environment in that space. And you have the boards where people are looking at. In some instances, those are eye candy, but in some instances, they actually provide relevance to people who are coming in and looking at the board. Um, but you have those rooms where people are working 24-7, and it does look that sort of Star Wars type of, okay, this is the op center. Daniel Ennis, thanks so much for joining us today. Okay, thank you. That's Daniel Ennis, former NTOC director at NSA and currently executive director of the University of Maryland Global Initiative on Cyber. We'll have an extended version of my interview with Mr. Ennis next week on our website. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber.
Joining me once again is Jonathan Katz. He's the director of the Maryland Cybersecurity Center and a professor of computer science at the University of Maryland. Uh, Jonathan, we saw a recent blog post from Google about uh, research they're doing, work they're doing on uh, post-quantum cryptography. Well, why is uh, why is quantum computing important? Why is this notion of post-quantum cryptography uh, important for encryption? A lot of people are now worried about uh, the potential for advances in quantum computing. And uh, as many of our listeners may know, uh, quantum computers would actually be able to break uh, all the public key cryptography that's currently used on the Internet. So even if you're not worried about uh, a potential quantum computer existing today, uh, if you're concerned about long-term security of your communications, you might be concerned about a quantum computer even coming into existence 10 years from now. So this new class of our so-called post-quantum crypto systems is exactly meant to be secure even against a quantum computer. And so it relies on new mathematical techniques beyond the ones that are currently being used today. And would this affect, uh, you know, the current techniques for, for encryption? Is, is this a, a, um, a sort of a backwards compatible kind of thing? Yeah, so the way Google has done it, first of all, they're only doing it on uh, some limited number of connections, and they're really just doing it for, uh, as you said, research purposes to kind of test the efficiency uh, of the uh, new protocol. And they've done it in such a way, actually, that it doesn't downgrade the security of any existing connections, and the reason is uh, because what they're doing is actually running the existing uh, key exchange protocol in parallel with a post-quantum key exchange protocol. And so uh, in the best case, it gives you better security, and even in the worst case, it doesn't uh, downgrade the security beyond what's already available. All right, Jonathan Katz, thanks for joining us. Struggling to secure on-prem apps with modern identity? Don't worry, you're not alone. Join industry leaders from Fortune 500 organizations to secure your apps on any cloud with any IDP, regardless of your environment's complexity. Meet Strata's identity orchestration platform, Mavericks. Say goodbye to the headaches of app refactoring and legacy tech debt. With identity orchestration, you can modernize legacy apps to use MFA or passwordless authentication in a few weeks, migrate from one IDP to another, and so much more without changing the app. No matter your IAM use case, Strata extends the value of your current identity investments. And the best part? You can try it for free today. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire to share your biggest identity challenge, and they'll hook you up with a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Don't miss out. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire. That's strata.io slash cyberwire. State-sponsored cyber attacks are inducing more enterprises to turn to security vendors for protection. The Washington Post sees some of the beneficiaries of this trend as Silence, ThreatConnect, FireEye, Palantir, and CrowdStrike, and there are surely many others. That said, security stocks have shown mixed results recently, and persistent rumors that FireEye may be a takeover target reappeared this week. The Motley Fool notes that such rumors have been good for FireEye's share price and speculates that possible suitors include Symantec, IBM, and Cisco. Finally, we'd like to end this week with some advice that should go without saying, but apparently doesn't. You don't really need to be told, Pokemon trainers, that you shouldn't pursue Pokemon into dangerous, sensitive, or restricted areas like memorials or nuclear reactors. Or for that matter, NSA headquarters? Apparently, some of you do. The Odenton Severn Patch, the hyper-local news service for the southeast gate at Fort Meade, ran a notice asking people not to catch them all on Fort Meade. So please, restrain yourselves. 
If you're in the area, however, you might wander up to Annapolis Junction and track Pokemon around the National Cryptologic Museum and enjoy the exhibits while you're there. There's no advice from Langley about Pokemon, so maybe it's okay to chase them there, but we're sure the trainers would welcome some guidance. So come on, CIA, give them the word. The truth shall make them free. We're pretty sure we read something like that down your way. And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K Cyberwire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.